Um, so we're going to bounce around a little bit in three different passages of Scripture uh, this evening. And as we uh, continue this brief series on the life of John the Baptizer, gave kind of an overview uh, last Wednesday evening. And tonight I want to talk to you about the mighty declarations of John. And we're going to open up in the book of John, John's Gospel, in chapter number 1. And uh, I think we will start, where are we going to start? We're going to start in verse 29 tonight. When, when we think about John the baptizer, better known as John the Baptist, but John the baptizer, when we think of him, um, I, the, the, the key statement that I see kind of as an umbrella over his life is something that Jesus said about him. And he said, there, born of a woman, there's never been a greater one than John the Baptist. And I believe he's probably talking primarily about John's calling and John's assignment as a prophet. And I've always been intrigued by that. And, and let me explain why. Obviously, it's a true statement. If Jesus says John's the greatest, then guess what? John is the greatest. And it's not up for vote. He's not asking our opinion. He declared it, so it's true. But it's interesting because when I look at the prophets just in the Old Testament, the ones we know about, there's a lot more that did more cool stuff than John. <laughs> you know, raising the dead's kind of cool. Um, you know, calling down fire to consume the false prophets on top of a mountain, pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, you know, causing sick people to be healed, really, really cool. Um, there's so much that went on with Old Testament prophets that when, when you look at John the baptizer's life, he never did a miracle. Uh, it, s- it says that in John chapter number 10, I think verse 41, says he never did a miracle. We don't have a single record of him casting out a demon. That John the baptizer's ministry that Jesus declared to be done by the greatest man ever born of woman Um, His ministry only involved two key activities, preaching and baptizing, water baptizing, preaching and water baptizing. If you don't have more than that at a church these days, most people won't come. And and yet those two things, proclamation of kingdom truth and water baptizing, baptism unto repentance, were the two key staples that John did. And by the way, he didn't do it for 15 years. Most conservative scholarship believes that John's public ministry was about a year. So for a year, he preached and baptized. And tonight, I'm going to look at one of those key components. What did he say? Because I believe that God is raising up similar types of ministry in this generation. John was the prophetic forerunner coming before Messiah. That's not a role that he shares with anybody. That was prophetic, objective, scriptural fulfillment. That's on his life. But I believe that kind of ministry that he had at Jesus' first coming is going to be duplicated hundreds of thousands of times over, that many different individuals, as we approach the second coming of Jesus. So I think it's only prudent that we make ourselves aware of what exactly was John saying before Jesus came the first time, And is there something that we might want to learn from that and make sure it flavors our messaging as a generation, perhaps the last generation, you never know, living before the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so let's talk about that tonight. I'm going to begin just reading in John chapter number 1 and uh, get in the right place and beginning in chapter 29. Say amen if you're with me. You were there? Okay. John 1, 29. The next day... John the baptizer, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he 
of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. And he's speaking of the Father here when he says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And just for added emphasis, verse 35 and 36, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. John said a lot of things during his brief ministry, but perhaps none are more epic than having the privilege of being the human being who gets that moment of pronouncement that initiates or inaugurates the public ministry of Israel's Messiah. When John said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there, it doesn't get much more epic than that. And so I want to talk about not only this passage in John chapter number one, but I also want to go to two other places that I think we need to at least keep them in the back of our mind, if not right in the forefront, and understand that as you continue to walk with Jesus, and as we continue to simultaneously approach the coming of Jesus, the second coming, we should expect to hear dogmatic declarations from the body of Christ that are similar to what John declared at the first coming of Christ. So I think you'll understand more as we get into it. So let's go and let's just start back in the book of Matthew, chapter number three. These verses will be up on the notes on the screen. But here is John's general cry. And this is the description of his general cry. It is this, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom is here. John's primary message was a message to the nation of Israel to repent because the Messiah is here and the kingdom is at hand. So that's what I call his unfading message. Look with me in verses 1 and 2 in the notes. It says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and here is what he was pre preaching. Here's the summary of his preaching ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I know this is a little redundant. I know we've talked about it, but I don't mind telling you important stuff more than once. When the word and the command is given, I want you to remember this. John the baptizer is being sent by God. We'll establish that right here in a few moments. But he is called of God, the first public prophet to minister and proclaim in Israel in four centuries. And so he is a sign and a wonder in and of himself. And so when he burst upon the scene, his message is for the nation of Israel to repent. 
Now, if you've grown up in church or you've been around church long enough, at least in Bible preaching churches, you're familiar with the word repent, but it means different things to different people in different places. Let me give you the biblical meaning. It is a command from John, really from God through John, to the nation of Israel to change the way they are thinking about everything. That the Lord was saying, you must change the way you view everything in light of the kingdom now coming. 400 years of prophetic silence. He burst on the scene, and the command is not polished. It's not slick. It's not marketed. It is bare bones, brass tacks, command from John telling everybody, no matter what station you were in in life, whether you were wealthy or non-wealthy, whether you were the elite or whether you were low in the social order, whether you were Jewish and that was his primary audience, or whether you happened to be part of the Roman cohort that was in that area, he's just proclaiming the same thing. Repent, change your thinking about everything. Now, friends, I, I, I want to go ahead and insert this because I think... Because we talk a lot about revival, we talk about breakthrough, we talk about seeing so much stuff, and all of the stuff that we talk about is valid, but I'm going to tell you, it will never, ever happen until the church repents. And I'm not talking about repenting from this, 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 or this. I'm not talking about repenting of individual sins. That's part of it. But that's actually the effect of the repentance I'm talking about. I'm talking about pry our minds off of the temporary. Get our heads out of uh, pretending like the earth is the ultimate kingdom and that the greatest thing that could ever happen to us is to be successful by Western 21st century standards, living as if this was all there was to existence, trying to make the most and keep the most and get the most and be applauded the most. Those are the values of this world. And instead, the kingdom of God says, no, you actually have to forsake this world and enter into an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But listen, we will never do that as a people until we change the way we think about everything. You know, in this house, um, you don't get to be comfortable. You, you would not be here. If, if you're a person that wanted a comfortable, cozy kind of church, that gave you a little bottle with a nipple on it and gave you warm milk and burped you and sent you off on your way, you wouldn't be here. You'd come once, you'd never come back. Why? It's not because we're anything special, but because what we're trying to do is to be biblical. We're trying to literally reform the church to bring about a biblical understanding that has been lost over the decades, if not centuries. But the only way that's going to happen is if as the word of God is preached, as the Holy Spirit is claiming lordship over our lives, we must change the way we think. You actually have to renounce some things. You actually have to deny yourself. You actually have to enter into a, a life of taking up your cross and following Jesus daily. And before you object inward, let me tell you, that doesn't mean you can't have a house and you can't have a car and you can't enjoy life. We're not talking about some kind of doom sentence on you. But we are talking about not living for those things and instead living for a kingdom that you haven't fully seen yet. That was John's message. John was telling everybody, repent, repent. And by the way, there's an urgency on it for John. Why? Because he knows the Messiah is coming and the kingdom is being given entrance to all. And so it's not business as usual. Well, down in verse number three, his unfading message is stemming from, it's sourced in, a prophetic calling. Verse number three, John the gospel writer adds this commentary after he quotes John, uh, before he quotes John later on, but he says this, speaking of John the baptizer, this is he 
who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah wrote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I'll give you three primary chapters in the Old Testament that speak to the ministry of John the Baptist. One is right here in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 40. Just read the first five verses. You'll find that 750 years approximately before John lived, this prophecy was given by Isaiah that there would be one who would come as a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way the king is coming. And I told you last time that what that physically meant in ancient days, before a king moved into a new territory, there would be runners that would go before him, they were heralds, and they would say, they would announce the name of their king, they would give the timetable when he'd enter into that region or city, and then there would be others who were servants that would literally clear the path. They would move rocks, they would move stones, they wanted it to be level and smooth. That's the way John's ministry is being seen here in the spiritual, and it was prophesied by Isaiah 750 years earlier. The, the other two chapters would be Malachi chapter number three and Malachi chapter number four, which of course was the last writing Old Testament prophet. And so the last thing God closed or put in the Old Testament, the last Old Testament writing prophet was Malachi. And the last thing he alluded to was there's one coming who would come before the Lord and he would prepare the way of the Lord and he would prepare the people before the Lord came. And John's ministry had a prophetic destiny attached to it. Um, we're not told in Scripture a lot about John's life. My best guess, and you can feel free to disagree with me, is that John likely knew the prophetic attachment to his life. It is highly likely that before um, Zechariah and Elizabeth passed off the scene that they told John of his prophetic destiny. Now he's been out in the wilderness for some time, living on his own, just him and God. And now the time has come where that prophetic destiny is now coming and manifesting. I, let me just add this just by way of application. Some of you have a calling on your life and you sense it, it stirs within you, and yet the door hasn't opened yet. And the timing hasn't come to its completion yet. And there are moments where you feel like, did I miss it? Am I wrong? Am I being arrogant? Am I being presumptuous? Is, is this just me or is this the Lord? And, and, and there are moments in the delay between a, a calling or an awareness of a calling and, and the fulfillment of it or the unleashing towards it. There's that time period where God makes every servant wait. Anybody that I've ever, ever learned from and benefited from and the people I admire most in the kingdom, all of them had a waiting period. And there are times where God will give you a legitimate calling and then he'll attach almost immediately to it, not now. He said to Habakkuk, the vision is for an appointed time. Wait for it. Even though it tarries, wait for it. It will surely come. And this is John's surely come season. This is the opportunity where he comes out and he starts living his prophetic calling. Now, I like verse number four because it gives us something that um, I just like to provoke people with. So let me take a sip of water. Let me provoke people a little bit. I like John's unorthodox appearance. You'd never let John the Baptist, you would not want John the Baptist to be holding a week of meetings at your Bible Belt conservative church. Verse number four. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate, his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, this is not only interesting, but John, everything about him is unorthodox. He, he lives in the wilderness. 
he is a Nazarite, so although it's not mentioned specifically, but the, the, the proclamation over his life was that of a Nazarite vow, so it is highly likely he's never had his hair cut. So he's a long-haired guy wearing a scratchy, ugly, been in the desert for 20 years kind of camel garment that is hairy, and it's wrapped on the outside with some leather belt, and the Bible says that he spends his days eating bugs and, and washing it down with honey straight off the beehive. <laughs> and by the way, he's completely in the will of God. Some of us are, are just kind of prone to where we, somebody, we see somebody looking a little different. We got some eccentric people in the body of Christ. I'm glad everybody doesn't look like me. It would be so boring, amen. Um, but we have some eccentric people in the body of Christ. And you know what the religious spirit says 100 times out of 100? Oh, they're just trying to get attention. They're just trying to get attention. They're just trying to draw attention. Not necessarily. Sometimes they just may have something within them going on inside of them, and God wants them to just lean a little bit outside of the box. By the way, you'll find out that in, I think it's in 2 Kings, as a matter of fact it is, it's in 2 Kings chapter number 1, verse number 8, that Elijah, the one who was uh, the prototype for John's ministry, Elijah had a hairy garment that he wore. And I don't know, I don't know how it all worked, but it, chances are Elijah's, I mean, John's probably like, I'm coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah, I'm going to get his wardrobe too. And so he is out there and he is living out his prophetic destiny. Can I just give you this? He was odd looking. He was a strange looking man. If he showed up here tomorrow, Trannon and Henry and Jeff and the security team would be having a conversation with him in the parking lot because they'd be like, what is up with this dude? That's just us. We all lean towards kind of looking on the outside. But John's whole ministry was nonconformist. He was, that's why I call him a sign and a wonder. Even his visible appearance communicated to people, this is not normal. His ministry was not normal. His message was not normal. And his appearance was not normal. And if you and I, just pastoring us in this moment for a moment here, if you and I are always expecting or insisting that God work through the normal means that we have become accustomed to, we may miss the greatest prophetic signal that he's sending to us. And so, friends, when I'm telling you, metanoia, repent, it's not just stop doing bad things. It is open up your mind and recognize that God's doing something here, and we have to change the way that we think. Now, all of y'all are going to come back next week with purple hair and tattooed faces and nose piercings, and hey, do your thing, man. It's none of my business. But the point being is, listen, don't judge the external and assume that you're qualified to know what's going on in the internal because John was completely in the will of God and I guarantee you he was the strangest looking man on the scene and he was the only man through whom God was speaking in that moment here's what I like the best about him verses five and six we're still talking about here we're still talking about his general cry he's preaching repentance he's bursting on the scene but look at this verses five and six look at this magnetic anointing that he had this is what the scripture says. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Watch this. Confessing their sins. Now, this is extraordinary because John was not um, going into the urban setting. He was not going into the big uh, populated areas. 
As a matter of fact, he's intentionally staying on the outskirts in the region of the Judean wilderness, and he's moving in and out of different territories on the outskirts. But he's not going directly to the people, but the people. This is before Twitter and social media and marketing, any of that. It was word of mouth, and it would have gone something like this. Have you heard about the fiery prophet out in the wilderness? No, we haven't heard of that. Let me tell you, this man is sent of God. We've never heard anything like this. Listen, 400 years of prophetic silence, the oldest person in the community had never met anybody that had ever heard a prophet in person. It had been four centuries. And so now he's coming and the people are intrigued. Could it be God speaking to Israel again? Is, is God taking the tarp off of us and letting us to nationally breathe again? It's truly the word of the Lord returning, and could it be that the Messiah is coming? Is this man, is this the one that we're hearing about, the strange-dressed man eating the locust and honey, preaching fire, is this the Messiah? People would wonder that about John. But what I love about it is that whatever was going on with him, a hungry people ran out there because they thought there might be the possibility of getting their soul fed. You see, one of the great things, we can harp all day long about the depravity of our culture and all. I mean, listen, it is what it is. We can't pretend to be shocked and outraged anymore. This is America. This is where you live. This is the way it's going. Barring a, a, a heaven-sent revival that comes through a repentant church, this thing is not going to get better on its own. Government is not going to bring about an awakening in this country. Civility is not going to get better. Racial tensions on their own will never get better unless the church is in the, in the epicenter of whatever is going to be doing. It's not going to happen. But in, in this situation, there, there creates in our culture a hunger. People are hungry for something real. They're, they're hungry for something that brings hope. They're hungry for anything that, that brings a sense of of. of, of um, connectivity to all that's going on. It's an empty generation you're living in. It's a blind generation you're living in. It's an angry generation that we're living in. But when you get people out of the, the, the hive where all the buzz is and you get them by themselves, what you're going to find is people that want to believe in something, but where is it? That's the time John was living in. And so God sends John and John begins preaching the kingdom and the hungry people are willing to leave their homes, leave the city, go out into the wilderness and hear the weird prophet talk about the kingdom. And the indications are is that it was, it was causing a major stir around that area because the description is all the region round about Jordan were going out to him. So it wasn't a crowd of 15 or 20. It would have been, pardon me, day after day, tons of people from all walks of life coming out and he's not preaching seeker-friendly sermons. He's not. He, he's not telling them, you know, this is their best day now. He's not telling them, you know, how, how God's going to make them wealthy, healthy, and wise. Now, all of those things may have components of truth in them, but that wasn't his message. His message was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so these people, masses of them, we're it's right there in verse number six. We're confessing their sins. They were confessing their sins and being baptized into repentance. It was a symbolic washing. There, there wasn't often that Hebrews would undergo the rite of baptism. Typically, it was Gentile proselytes that would be baptized in order to enter into Judaism. 
And this, although it wasn't true about every Hebrew that was living in that day, but John's going to address it later. The, the Jews often thought because they are descendants of Abraham that the wrath of God would never come upon them. That they could acknowledge their sins and they understood historically that there were sacrifices for sins, but they're waiting on the glory to return. And so there was a national and even a racial undercurrent of pride as Hebrews that felt like we're the children of Abraham, we're the covenant people, the Gentiles are the dogs, and wrath doesn't have anything to do with us because we're the descendants of Abraham. And whatever John was proclaiming was causing people similar to that or just like that to say, God be merciful unto me, the sinner. And they're getting baptized unto repentance because they recognize what had happened. They, they engaged metanoia. They changed their thinking. And when they made an, a decision of the spirit, a decision in their will to say, I will no longer live the same, think the same, expect the same. I am looking for Messiah. And everything changed. And they signified that outwardly by John's second pillar of ministry, which was baptism. L let me, before moving on to point number two of my three, um, how, I, I don't know the best way to say this, so let me just trust that you'll give me grace if I don't say it perfectly. Please expect those of us who have a ministry of proclamation to regularly talk about the need for repentance we have to talk about the darkened mindset of american culture we have to call one another out of that it is very easy for you to be clear as a bell in this moment then show back up in a week and have drifted backwards a little bit why because you're getting bombarded by the darkened thinking of this world through every stream that comes at your life. And so we need to call each other. It doesn't need to be all that we preach, but it does need to be among all that we preach. And so whether it's me or Billy or Dustin or Gabe or any teacher or a house church leader or uh, those that lead your kids, I, oh my goodness, I don't have time to tell these stories, but one of the most disheartening things that's ever occurred to me in ministry is when a parent of a teenager used to call me up, this is years ago, would call me up mad at me because our youth pastor called their kids out for sin. I'm thinking, are you protecting your kids from repentance? And people, because parents want their kids to love church. And little Johnny will never come back if somebody tells him that he needs to repent. So we'd rather let Johnny come to church all the time and be lied to? No, friends. We owe a debt of love to each other. So we, we're pro there may be some friends that you don't want to bring here the first time. <laughs> you know, you're trying to witness to a friend at work, and you're like, man, we, we, we just need to get them to where they don't think that, you know, Christianity is a bunch of flame-throwing hucksters and screaming pastors and stuff like that. You might want to take them the first couple of times to another church, let them get saved, and then trust the Holy Spirit and bring them here, you know? Listen, I'm not even being funny. I'm sure we're not the model of seeker-friendly, but listen, the, 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 to love somebody is to seek their highest good. And man, I'm going to tell you, if, if I'm sick and I'm at the oncologist, and the doctor's looking at me, and he doesn't want to hurt my feelings. He doesn't want to make me uncomfortable. He doesn't want me to leave feeling badly. So after looking at the, 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 the charts and the, the, the scans, and he sees the masses, but he doesn't want to tell, he just says, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. 
We would never tolerate that from a physician. He'd be, he'd be out of work for malpractice. But we often expect that of those that are called to help us spiritually. And, and we want them to tell us everything's fine when truth may be that there's a spiritual malignancy at work. John was one of those spiritual physicians that wasn't worried about hurting the, the people's feelings. He wanted to tell them the truth. Now, here's where we're going to get to the part that I always have to keep my heart in check because I like this part too much. What am I talking about? John's confrontational fire. And this is where he is blasting the religious leaders. Have y'all, y'all know about this, right? Have y'all heard what he said? You haven't? Good. I get to tell you for the first time. Awesome. Because I, I just tell you, man, there, I, I had lunch with my dad today. I hadn't seen him in six months. My dad is a, he loves the Lord and he is one of the most astute theological minds that, that I've met. And of course, he's you know, like my hero. I mean, I love my father. He's flawed like the rest of us, but he's just a good man. And, and my dad is about as nonconformist as they come. And I've been telling him kind of what, what God's doing. And, and we were talking, and he's like, well, Jeff, you're a reformer. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my assignment. My assignment is not an evangelist. I'm not the greatest evangelist. I love souls. My assignment is to reform the church. And so when I look at John and then when I look at Jesus who comes after John and, and you realize they were also engaged in confrontational reformation, they, they did not let the status quo of religion go unaddressed. And I see so plainly that we live in a time that is similar in conservative Western evangelical or charismatic Christianity. It is similar to what had taken place in the institutionalization of Judaism under the Pharisees and under the scribes. And watch what John does. First of all, he starts out, and we're going to be in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. He starts out with words of wisdom. So he's in a crowd, and among the crowd are some, some religious leaders. So it says in verse 7, when he saw many, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, welcome, gentlemen. We are glad you're here today. How honored we are to have you, our wonderful guest in our presence. Nope. He said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And watch this little word of knowledge here, word of wisdom. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, I don't have enough time to really kind of bake in this with you. I wish I did. But so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were just two branches of the religious controllers of that day. The Pharisees would have been your hyper-conservative theological geniuses, impeccable morals. Everything was about heaven, but they approached heaven by the means of keeping both the law of God and then the innumerable laws of man, which was impossible for anybody to keep up with. The Sadducees were the other side of the coin. They overreacted to the ways of the Pharisees. So the Sadducees were were kind of the liberal theologians. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a lot of stuff they should have believed in. So, but the one thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees had in common eventually is they hated Jesus because Jesus came and he's, he's totally throttling their system. And when, when their system is getting throttled, they know one thing's for sure. If this keeps up, we're going to lose our control of the people. 
We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our traditions. We're going to lose everything that we've lived our whole lives for. And so the reason why they're there at the baptism of John is because all the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes have been controlling. They're going to John's meeting now. They're going out to hear the crazy, wild, wardrobe, you know, long-haired, locust-eating, honey-dripping, you know, flaming prophet out in the wilderness. And so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out there, and John sees them. The reason why he knows they're there is because they dress the part. Oh, if you're a Pharisee and you're walking around in that day, your whole wardrobe lets everybody know you are among the ruling elite. You better not disrespect me. You better honor me. You can see who I am. So John sees them in the crowd that day. And it's harsh, it's intense, but it's actually wisdom. He says to them, <laughs> I've never done this, okay? I mean, I, I like to turn it up a notch from your average Joe in the pulpit, but I've never looked at an audience and said, you bunch of snakes. That's exactly what he said. He called them the religious most moralistic, respected, studious religious leaders of his day, and John's not buying any of it. John has been in the desert with God Almighty for a number of years, and God has given full disclosure to John about what's in the heart of the Pharisaical system in Judaism. And so John, by the way, if you, don't, if you think John just kind of lost his cool, Jesus said the exact same thing later. Jesus also called the same group of people a bunch of snakes. And so he says to them, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What he's saying is this. He says, the fires of God's wrath are coming, and you guys are hanging around like it's going to miss you. He says, oh, you think, you think you're going to get off scot-free because you're children of Abraham. That's where the word of wisdom comes. He looks at them, and he can see the arrogance coming out of their pores. And he says, don't think just because you're a descendant of Abraham that this doesn't apply to you. God's not impressed with your DNA. He says, if God wants to raise up Hebrews, he can take this pile of rocks right here and make some wonderful Hebrews right out of this pile of rocks if he wants to. What is John saying? He's telling these men for the first time in their lives, you men are in trouble with the Almighty. Religion hates that. Religious controllers, you're not allowed to question them, much less call them into accountability let me just I'm, I want to make sure I'm not talking to people who don't know what I'm talking about have y'all ever been around an overtly religious person like that 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 struts spiritually struts you're allowed to say so I'm asking you you're not telling me I'm not, I'm not looking for names and emails I'm just saying ha, ha, have you ever been around a religious controller okay not as many as I thought praise God I used to be one by the way I I, I was a junior I was a junior. I wasn't given the big chair, but I was a junior. I was being groomed in the way of legalism. And when I got delivered, and I got delivered, I got, God turned on the light. I started seeing it everywhere. And it still exists. I don't want to be the cynic, but I'm just going to say this. Whereas it might not be as overt as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of John and Jesus' day, um, if you've ever gone into a system of religion, um, a denominational system, and you've introduced anything that doesn't jive with the accepted norms, you will find out what religious controllers are all about. The word of wisdom also was accompanied with, in verse 11, back in Matthew 3, a word of witness. 
This is just so beautiful. He says, I baptize you. He's telling the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's telling the religious elite to repent of their sin. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is saying, you can't even handle the water baptism. I'm trying to get you ready for the one who's really coming. I'm not the one. He says, the one coming after me, and he's referencing here when he says, uh, uh, King James, I learned it in King James, right? who's, who's the latchet of whose shoes I'm not even worthy to buckle or something like that. He's talking about the, the, the task of the lowest servant of a household would, when people would come home or guests would come to the house, the lowest servant would take the sandals off of the guest or the homeowner's feet and he would wash them like Jesus did in John chapter 13. J Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. John the Baptist is saying here, when Jesus is walking in, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. I'm not worthy to do the, I'm not worthy to be anywhere near him. And so John's witnessing about the Messiah who hasn't been specifically revealed yet. But notice what he says. He speaks of a water baptism, but he also speaks of a spirit baptism. Now, I've, I got like 15 minutes left max. Y'all probably be gone before then. But let me just tell you this. I don't have time to go into the depths of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what John is talking about here is that there is an experience of the Holy Spirit that he describes as being connected to the fire of God on a person's life. And John says, I'm going to baptize you with water to get you to metanoia, to change the way that you are thinking. But I'm doing that in preparation for the one that's coming that's going to immerse you in something altogether different. And that is going to be the presence of God the Spirit, the personhood of God the Spirit. And it's going to come with fire and power on your life. And Acts chapter 2, we see that in its ultimate fulfillment. I, I, I don't have time, really. I really just don't. We need to do a series on, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and clear up a lot of misconceptions because on both sides of the aisle there's a lot of confusion but let me just say this um friend there is a fiery baptism for every believer and it, it does not necessarily happen at salvation now theologically we receive the holy spirit when we are saved uh, Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said if you do not have the spirit then you are none of his it means if you don't have the spirit it's because you don't belong to the Lord but that's not what I'm talking about. Upon receiving Jesus Christ, Jesus does not cram his physical frame into you. He has a body. So when you receive Christ, you receive the comforter. You receive the Holy Spirit. But just having the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that he has all of you. And so there is a fiery experience that God wants for everyone to have. And I break the line. I don't, I don't sign off on the doctrine that if you, I, matter of fact, I got into a debate with a guy recently about this. He's like, and he's like if, you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you've not been baptized in the Spirit. And I disagree with that. I disagree with that absolutely. I do not think it's mandatory that a person speak in tongues to have the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of you from Assemblies of God background, Pentecostal background, you're saying that's, that's the Baptist in you talking, man. That's the Baptist in you. I'm just telling you this. There is a succession of deeper, intense experiences with the Lord. And there ain't a person in the room that has experienced everything that God has for us to experience. And we don't chase the experience, we chase him. But as we chase him, he manifests the experience. 
And Jesus is the one who controls it all. And so listen, I don't have any problem counseling you to, to just pray this. If you, if you say, man, I don't know that I've ever had anything like that. Why don't you ask Jesus to baptize you with the Spirit? Why don't you just ask him? I mean, you're not asking for anything that's unbiblical. Just ask him. So, well, Jeff, I feel like I already have the Spirit. Well, just humor me then. Just go and ask, because let me tell you what happened to me. Man, I have so butchered this message, but I'm having a great time tonight. <laughs> I, I, as, <laughs> I knew enough of my Bible to understand that my experience as a Christian was nothing compared to what I saw in the Scripture. So I didn't get depressed. I got, I got challenged. I said, Lord, you're big. And, and I'm, I'm just kind of been settling for a few years on the denominational line, but I read in my Bible all sorts of stuff that I've never seen, heard, or experienced, and nobody I know has. Um, I'll just take whatever you have for me. And I prayed that for about nine months. Lord, give me all that you have. Give me, and I started experiencing joy, and I had a lot of different experiences, but it was still somewhat in the box. Until an early day in February of 2003, four months after I became the pastor of Meadow Independent Fundamental King James Only Baptist Church. And I was just praying that prayer for months. And um, God chose that particular Monday or Tuesday, I never can remember which day it was, to just say, okay, you're serious about this. It's been many months. So he introduces himself to me by myself in my office with um, a fullness of his presence that I don't want to cheapen by trying to describe it in detail. It both thrilled me and terrified me. Did not know what to do. Got myself back together, said we'll go back to praying in English now. Here we go. Same thing happened. Just said, I think I'm done praying today. The next day, same thing happened. I thought that would have been the pinnacle. Sitting in this office over here several years later during that same time period that I described earlier where I was being accosted by religious people that were felt like they were winning. I sat in my office with a Nigerian prophet whose name was Jude. And Jude had gotten sick of me crying and whining about the religious people in the church ruining my life. You've heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again because it's fun. And so I'm sitting there, and I'd just gotten back from a trip, and I was telling Jude, this guy's doing this, and this guy's saying this. And I don't know if y'all are familiar with Nigerian prophets. You don't mess with a Nigerian prophet. You just don't. And he's a, Jude's a big guy, man. He was just sitting in an armchair. And I can still see it, his big hands. You know, sitting over the armrest, and I'm over there on the opposite side going, <laughs> and Jude just got tired of it. This is what he said. Man of God, quit your crying. We will pray now. <laughs> he did not sound like Charlton Heston. When I think of the voice of God, I don't think Charlton Heston. I think Jude. <laughs> and we began to pray. I'm going to tell you this. None of this may go on TV because I don't want to deal with the emails, but um, the, whole, the whole room, my office, changed, the atmosphere. I still don't know if it was in the natural or if it was just something within me, 
but I do know that it was a white mist that I began to see everything through. And we were both praying in the spirit for probably 20 minutes together. He didn't counsel me. He didn't do anything, but he was praying and just, he was praying in his native tongue and spiritual tongues and in English. And, and all I know is it was a, just a change in the atmosphere. And I've never been the same since that day. Never. And there was something that shifted in me. And I'm going to tell you what I believe it was. Whether it was the first or subsequent, there was a baptism of the Holy Spirit in my office that day, and I've never been the same. And I want to tell you this. The reason why I encourage you to call on the Lord as long as it takes to baptize you in the Holy Spirit is because it changes you. It, it, it delivers you from things. It delivered me from the fear of man that had been oppressing me. It delivered me from, from being a slave to making everybody in the church happy. We wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for those occasions that I described. We wouldn't be here. You might be here, but I wouldn't be here. Why, why is this important? Because John is saying, here's my word of witness. There's one coming behind me. I'm baptizing you with water under repentance, but it's only to prepare you for the one who's going to baptize you spiritually and fire is going to be in you and on you and through you and around you. And friends, you don't have to be some religious elite, some spiritual kingpin to be able to experience this. This is an experience that is offered to the entire body of Christ. Why? Because he doesn't want us living in our own power. He doesn't want us leaning on our own wisdom. He doesn't want us to be coming up short in everything that comes against us. But there are some things that he will allow to come hard and heavy against us until it breaks us to the point where we're desperate for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And when we get desperate, I'm going to tell you something. I, a hungry man's going to eat. When you get desperate enough, you'll say, I can't go another day, Lord. I cannot go another day. I don't know how to finish the sermon. Um, hmm. I ask you to stand to your feet if you're physically able to do that. Sometimes the Lord just shifts a trajectory. This is not where I was going to do tonight. And I think it's because he wants to help some people in here tonight. I'm, I'm not going to ask 50 of you to come forward and lay hands on you. I'm not going to do it because you don't need that tonight. But if any of that awakened something in you, it's not about you being an introvert or an extrovert. It's not about personality. It's not about anybody other than you and the Son of God. He wants what is best for you. I've had people tell me, Jeff, I'm, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've never needed that. Uh, you haven't needed it for what you limited yourself to. But you need that baptism, that fullness, what he has for you. You live within your own means and limitations. Maybe you don't need it. But that's not the same thing chasing after him and following him and walking with him into what he has for you. Everybody in the room, 
there is a deeper experience for all of us, all of us. The deepest one in the room, there's a greater depth for you. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If, if, if this is your desire, you tell him now. Tell him now. Jesus, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I let you define what that means.